0: My guest today is Russell Hayes. Uh, This is Russell's third time on our podcast. Um, My co-host, Bruce Aldrich, and I have interviewed Russell twice about um, his books. Uh, Bruce is out of town this week, and he'll be back next week uh, for another episode. But today, Russell, uh, I I don't know how you're uh, so prolific, but uh, welcome back to our podcast for the third time. And today we're going to talk about the, the second go around with your uh, Volkswagen knowledge and a new big uh, book. I just got the PDF version yesterday of uh, the all encompassing work on the on the Volkswagen Golf. So uh, welcome back to our podcast. Nice to speak to uh, with you from. I think you're in, still in London. Is that correct? Still in
1: London. Nice to uh, nice to be back, James.
0: Thank you, Russell. Um, if I uh, understand correctly. This is your eighth book, and it's the second time you've written about, uh, what, a very encompassing uh, history of Volkswagen. So could you give me a, a kind of an overview of the importance of this book and, um, and, and why the Volkswagen Golf now? Yeah, well, uh, back in about uh,
1: 2012, I, I was looking for an, uh, an idea for a book. And you know, you look at anniversaries, and you can see what's coming up. And I noticed that forty years of the Volkswagen Golf was coming up in twenty fourteen. Uh, so I uh, I was surprised to find that nobody else had thought about this, seemingly, Yes. Or even Volkswagen. <laughs> and uh, I, proposed, I proposed the book to my pu- my then publisher, and um, who, who took it up, and the, and the book came out in twenty fourteen, and that was the entire story um, of the Golf from the days before it arrived, when Volkswagen was trying to just break the chain of making air-cooled rear-engine cars, which all look like the Beetle, and, and, and move forward into the front-wheel drive water-cooled age. Um, and this book now is is an updated version of it, um, to include the the Golf 8, which came out in late 2019.
0: Now, if, I, if I've looked correctly, it's been a, maybe a year or so since I've looked, but Volkswagen has two vehicles, uh, and you can correct me, of course. the The, the Beetle uh, and the Golf, in, among the the top telling top ten selling vehicles of all time, is that true? And and where is the Golf? Is I think it's number four, number five, in all, of all time.
1: Well, um, the the Golf long ago surpassed the Beetle. In oh, it its, did. In Thank itself. you. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's been through several generations, which the air called Beetle. Kind of didn't it? it evolved over, over over years, but quite slowly. Um, over, um, over thirty-five million golfs have been made. That's compared to twenty-one point five air-cooled beetles.
0: Oh, I didn't so, know it was that much. That's great.
1: Yeah, it's a huge number.
0: Yes, um, through the years, um, have the sales, if you know, uh, been divided? You know, fairly evenly uh, global sales, or has it been dominated uh, in, in European countries versus the U.S. or other parts of the world? Europe's always been the Gulf's natural home. It's one kind of the sales charts in Europe for a long time, and I think it actually still might be right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in
1: the U.S., it's, you know, as, as you might have seen, it's had a very interesting up and down career. Yes, um, and. Uh, Although largely it's been replaced by the Jetta, um, um, you know, the Golf with
0: a, with a, with a boot yes, um, or a trunk, um, in the sales chart.
1: But um, I, I found the, the story of the American Golf very interesting because, you know, they, they built them here um, in, in Westmoreland yes. um, be- between uh, 1978 and 87, uh, trying to build a, a home chrome Golf. And it was quite different from the European ones. Um, until and people decided that they actually would rather have a
0: a European golf and um, production is shut down. I see. I've been looking at um, as I mentioned, um, your uh, public relations or marketing <laughs> person forwarded a, a PDF file, and I've been you know looking through it as quickly as I can. Some of the body styles and the way that the golf uh, looks has looked over the years. Um, there's something remarkably attractive to it. It's it's a um, a very efficient uh, performance car on many levels, but it, to me it looks like a very simple car. Is that a fair assessment? And and how did that come about like that? I think it all stems from the original uh, Italian design by Dallara, yes, um, who again uh,
1: went to to um, style a whole whole bunch of its early nineteen seventies front wheel drive cars it was his simple three-box style with the with the um, blanked out um third rear pillar
0: mm-hmm.
1: um those proportions have generally stayed all the way through the life of the Golf and it's become um
0: sacrosanct that uh, that blank third third panel before the hatchback yes um has, that
1: has never had a window in it and never because that's a, a signature of the Golf uh and they've been very careful to carry those proportions and that sort of neatness of size all the way
0: through uh, since 1974. It's interesting when cars do that, whether it's, or manufacturers, I should say, do that, whether it's for a car like the Golf or, or high-end cars. I'm just going to say, let's say a, a Corvette, for example. You can still see that it's a Corvette, but sometimes the changes are pretty drastic, and and they're very successful with new styles, and sometimes they're not, or not as successful as other versions. Has that been the case with the Gulf? I don't think the extremes are as much as the Corvette, but, um, have the have over the years without having looked at all the detail of the book, have some been phenomenally successful, uh, years and some people say, "Uh Oh, what, what is that?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Some, some of them haven't quite hit the mark. Um, people are not still not quite that fond of the Gulf three which was yes. from 91 to 97. They regarded that as a bit too rounded, a bit
0: too heavy-looking. Um, so they really,
1: sharp, they really sharpened the, the style up for the Golf 4, uh, which was um, 90, uh, 97 to 2003. Mm-hmm. And that's regarded as a bit of a modern classic now because the, the proportions um, were so right. And that was quite an influential car because... Um, it, it introduced the idea of platform sharing, so uh, it gave rise its its transmission and its underpinnings. gave rise to a whole family of European cars within the Volkswagen Group, um, from Sayat and Audi and Skoda, uh, which were all built basically on the, on the basis of the Golf. Uh, and it made Volkswagen a
0: phenomenal amount of money, and um, it was something that was taken on by a lot of other manufacturers. I see. In in the more modern years, um, since then, uh, you mentioned this is the eight. Now, uh, what what uh, are your preferences? Can you, uh, if you don't mind me be asking you to be subjective as opposed to objective? Uh, what which ones do you like, and, and are there particular reasons you like certain years?
1: My preference is that, well, the golf one is a, is a is a is a lovely crisp edged Italian design. Yes, of nineteen seventies. Um, but sadly, very, very, very rare now because they they did rust quite well those early golfs. Despite that German build quality, they they used some um, uh, poor quality sealant and they leaked a bit. So um, they're quite rare. So there's the the golf one, the classic, um, and I still think the golf four, um, the one I've just mentioned from uh, uh, 1997. It, there are a lot of them still running around. They're quite durable cars, certainly certainly in Europe, and. They still look smart today. If you if you clean one up, um, the proportions are just right, and it's it's a really neatly styled car, which I think really has stood the test
0: of time. Yeah, I'm very attracted to those cars, and it's a little bit of an aside. But when last we spoke, we talked about the big book of small cars, uh, and um, in that in that book, um, I'm now having a love affair with a Nissan Figaro. <laughs> So that's that's my. I would love to have a Nissan Figaro, but I think it ties in in terms of how how uh, attractive some cars that look fairly simple, but they're they're attractive in their in their simplicity. I guess is maybe a, an okay way of saying it.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, um, I think people who who design cars say there's a sort of proportion, there's a natural proportion which is just pleasing to the eye, and you don't actually know why it's pleasing, but you just find it pleasing to look
0: at. Yes. That's true. Um, now, this is your eighth book, and I'll, I'll just, I think, if I have that right, yeah The Big Book of Small Cars was recent, and the, the book on VWs and Beetles and buses we talked to you about. What, other, uh, what are the, some of the other books, to go over that again, are in your, um, your expanding portfolio of books?
1: Oh, in the past. Uh, well, I, I started with The History of Lotus.
0: Yes. Then, then I did The History of TBR.
1: And then the history of the of the Ford Cortina, which was uh, a, another anniversary for to mark the um, fifty years of the Ford Cortina in um, 2012. Uh, I also did a book chronicling the Earls Court Motor Show in London, which was a you know a big feature of the London social scene for many years until. Uh, uh, and I was working on that when they were knocking the building down, and it was an iconic 1930s building. So it, that, was,
0: that was a little bit social history and architecture. Sure. Um, yeah, so... Uh,
1: that, and my current project is um, the entire
0: history of Aston Martin. Oh, my gosh. Uh, does that... Uh, not to take away from the, the book, where you're, why I've called you, but with the Aston Martin book, there's, you know, it's obviously very well known from the Bond movies. Does that... Are you sticking to the automotive side of the Aston Martin? Or are you going to go into the, kind of the, the movie side and other things of of James Bond and his distinguished ways and so on and so forth? What What is going to be in that book, if I can ask? Hopefully everything, something for
1: everyone, including all the racing. Yes. Uh, especially the 1950s racing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I will go into the uh, the Bond um aspect of it, but it has been very well covered by a lot of other people, so I don't want sure. to tread over to too much well-worn ground and hopefully um, do the
0: other history justice as well. Gotcha. Um, Russell, with with Volkswagen, and whether it's this book or the, the previous books um, or mentions it in other books, um, how much is there a sensitivity or, or do you not worry about it's it's uh, connection to to uh, Adolf Hitler.
1: Well, it goes, that goes all the way back to the Beetle, of course. Yes. Um, and and I, I, as I said, I think we we discussed before. It was it it was quite amazing how the meaning of the Beetle transformed from something which came from something so bad into this benevolent car. I think perhaps because it, the Beetle was made in so many countries, yes, quite early on in its, in its career, so it became something specific to those countries, and it meant something specific to um, where it was built, like in Brazil or Mexico or, or, or South Africa. It became something other than a, than a German car. It was, you know, part of the landscape, and also in America, you know, it was virtually considered as a as an american car even though it was never built in america
0: isn't that something i had I, that's that slipped my mind yeah i um i remember talking to a couple of uh, i think it was a father and son team one year um several years back at the monterey auto show and they had a split window or i think they called it a split window or a small window beetle that they had brought over from um Germany. And when they got to the border, they had some, they looked up the serial number, and it was very early in the the makings of the the car, and they had some difficulties. They had to kind of talk their way through getting the car out of the country. Um, Maybe you've heard about stories like that, where they, some of them, they wanted to, there was a a German lieutenant's car, it had some great pedigree, or infamous pedigree maybe, and um, they had some difficulty getting that car into the United States. Does that ring true in any of the things that you've heard about over the years?
1: Well, I've heard that it hasn't always been easy to import a car into the states. Yes, and I know least those, those, those little um, uh, Japanese K cars, like the like the Figaro, um, were only recently allowed to be imported. Yes, um, so that's why there's there's a kind of new market and a new interest in those little tiny Japanese car. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, going back to the Golf, um, uh, what did, uh, I think I asked you this before, maybe twice. When you write about these various cars, including the Golf, do you um, have a chance to, 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 or how often do you have a chance to drive any of these iconic cars, and by chance, do you own one? Well, I've,
1: I've, I have had a Golf in the past, which I love very much, Golf 5, mm-hmm. uh, and I have a Volkswagen up now, which is a, a tiny little Volkswagen not sold in the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, and
0: sadly, I haven't. Um, I haven't had a chance to drive an Aston Martin. Yes, cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have had. A, boy, that was a yeah. special treat. The couple of times I've had a chance to, to have to drive them for for you know what I do, uh, writing an auto review. It's just it's just a special vehicle. What's it like driving? Well, if you have a very small car, and it's a little bit naive of me, but having not been to London, but been in other metropolitan cities. Um, driving a smaller car in London must be must have its challenges on the one hand, but maybe in some smaller streets they, they they're very good city cars.
1: Well, it really has a really has an advantage where I live because um, I have to park on the street. Yes, in residence parking ways and um, and people park really badly. There's always great gaps in between the cars. <laughs> um,
0: yes, and if you've got a car that's about two meters long, you can just slot straight into it. So it's
1: it's like a little milk carton. Um, on the side, um. So it's very easy to park. So
0: it's it's ideal for London, and it's got quite a. I managed to get one with quite a powerful engine, yeah. A little turbocharger on it, so
1: it can it can go on the freeway. Okay, it's fine on the freeway.
0: Yes, the one thing I always get a kick out of too, and um, you know it far better than I do when you're, when you're doing the history of a car and you're looking back at, um, when it when they were first for sale and you look at some of the. Advertising flyers or brochures or marketing tools, and then you see some of the people that are in the advertising that they've used and and the original prices of the cars. I always get a big kick out of thinking, oh my gosh, you know, with the average price of a new car now these days, I think at forty-five thousand U.S. dollars, some of these cars just looks they and they were so inexpensive at the time, and they remain, you know, pretty pretty good value, but. What do you what do you make of I mean what do you think about when you when you see some of these old advertising uh, campaigns that must bring a chuckle to you I, I imagine at some point Well they have
1: they have that style, don't they I mean yes I, I always like the the 1950s one where the car is completely out of proportion <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you can make you can make the people look a lot smaller or the car look a lot bigger um, and that, that used to happen a lot with small cars. I uh, remember when I was doing the tiny cars book there's, a, there's an illustration of um I think three p-
0: three adults sitting in a bubble car. I thought, mm, really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right and, and some of the you know the, some of the fashion, some of the way that people dress and, and um, the exuberance on on families' faces you know they're going to go for a getaway weekend somewhere and it's maybe they have a dog you know or a picnic basket uh, those are always fun to to look at and reminisce you know, about the yeah. simple old days.
1: And when they've got their uh, luggage all
0: laid out in the big boat to, yeah. show, to show where everything's going to fit in the car. <laughs> <And> I- <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, um, going through a, a very long history of, of the Golf, um, what other areas are, are important for, for listeners or for, uh, for the public to know about this, this iconic car? It, it's it's um, it withstood a lot, as we talked about earlier, some not-so-good years, some great years. What is it about the golf um, that that makes it the golf? Is it utilitarianism or it's uh, other things that just make it so unique?
1: What it has become is um, certainly in Europe, it was exactly the right size. It was it was not too big and not too small, mm-hmm. and could always fit four adults in comfort. And it always gave you the feeling when you drove it of being that. Just that little bit better than all the other cars in its class, um, because Volkswagen m- managed to spend extra money because they're producing such such high volumes in very small details, which would make you feel as if you were having a, a, a better quality experience.
0: I have done so
1: nicer plastics. Um, I mean, one example with the with the Golf Four was that. They spent, um, I think, probably you know, in the grand scheme of things, several million on putting a little damper behind the grab handle. You know, the grab handle in the roof when you when you come inside. Yes. So that when you um, released it, it didn't go thump. How about last year? The uh, the the boss the boss of Volkswagen um, had to fight hard. To get this little damper installed, so it just um, glided back into place. Mm-hmm. And uh, another feature that they did was they, they lined the uh, door pockets with felt so that the keys didn't make a noise when they ra- when they were in the moved around in the pocket. There you go, so I love just that. It's
0: little,
1: little premium these little premium features mm-hmm. uh, that just made it feel a little bit more soothing and a little bit more special uh, every time you drove it.
0: Did the does the golf some of the earlier golfs have if I have this correct, the the Volkswagen Squareback had some, what did they call it? An automatic stick shift, um, and some unusual transmissions. What? How has the Golf um, progressed through the years? When was the first automatic? Uh, uh, fairly early on. Mm-hmm. That was uh, because they um, they
1: imported uh, the 1500 cc engine from the Audi 80. Uh, to um, power the upmarket gulfs and that came with an automatic transmission um, but they but they have had a, a couple of pioneering transmissions through the through the years um, they had they invented one of the first um, stop start cars you know the cars which um uh, stop when you come to a halt and then start again when you uh, when you press the accelerator yes they had a, a in the 19, uh, in 19 Nineties, they had a car called the Golf Ecomatic, which I don't think was sold in the States, which was a semi, which is a clutchless, clutchless automatic. I see. Which it, it actuated the clutch when you when you move the gear lever, and it also cut the engine and coasted to save fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh And that was not that wasn't popular at the time, but it was, but it's become commonplace now. And um, and of course, in the Golf Four, they uh, um, saw the debut of the. Dual, slip, dual shift gears which is the double clutch I uh, automatic where um, it's selecting the next gear is always ready before you select it um, and those DSG um, transmissions have been used ever since and uh, right across the range from you know Porsches and, and uh, Audis as well that was a very pioneering automatic gearbox
0: yes um, we touched on earlier some of the the models that may be very rare and some of them bless you. Uh, some of them might be, um, you know, maybe you can get them almost anywhere. C- could you give me some examples of a very rare, uh, golf and, and what it might cost if you found one and some of the ones that, um, maybe still bargains.
1: Well, the very early, the very early, uh, golf GTIs, the first, the first series golf GTIs, um, very, very collectible now, and, and certainly I think in, the, in in the UK, if you found one, it would have to be restored because none of the survived in original condition. Yes, uh, it would have been about forty you know uh, forty thousand pounds or more. I see. Um, so certainly very early G and the Mark Two GTI is, is starting to is 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 collectible now. Um, I think some of the more unusual engines. Are becoming very rare because uh, the the golf had a a six cylinder engine at one point called the VR six, mm-hmm. which, which was a, a very clever compact transverse um, front mounted uh, six cylinder engine, and it also had a a a, a, a five cylinder, uh, which was also found on the on the on golf in the states. So I think those are. Those will be quite unusual in future, mm-hmm. um, but I think I think the GTIs are always where the enthusiasm is going to lie.
0: I see, I see. Um, this is a new publisher for you, uh, or is it a, a, an old, a new old publisher for you? And and is the book available, or soon to be available in um, normal places, Amazon and other online sales, or is it in a different, a different selling uh, situation?
1: Yeah, well, this is this has got a bit of a different different story to it. Um, yes, I originally wrote the book for a, uh, the com- the Haynes Company. Yes, um, and uh, they were publishing historic car books as well as the manuals at the time. But before it was finished, they decided to stop publishing historic books. So I was about three quarters of the way through. So um, they let me carry on with the book myself, and I I, I teamed up with a uh a guy who was gonna edit it anyway um and he set up his own publishing company um and finished the first edition in
0: 2014
1: with me Mm -hmm. and uh, published it for me uh and we've been working together ever since and he has um published this second second edition with me okay and and in terms of where it's available um Probably at the moment, in for the states, the best place to get it direct is the detri- distributor, uh, which is uh, a bookseller called CarTechBooks.com.
0: CarTechBooks.com, great.
1: Yeah. And it's uh, seventy nine ninety five. Mm hmm. Uh, but you can also get it from from the big online retailers.
0: I see. Is it uh, currently? It's out now, or is it soon to be out? It's out now. It's out now. Um, I know I've asked you before about this. Um, I, I find it remarkable that in these big bigger books like this that people you, there is so much available uh, text of course is your expertise. The images uh, I find in your other books the, the how the images are done and they correspond with the text is, is very skillful and I, it, that, that kind of the graphics or the, if it's pagination or however it's done, to me is just I can't even comprehend doing that. So, compliments to um, who you work with on that. It, the books just flow. You know, the text is great, the images are great, and they all they all come together so nicely. So, compliments to to that. I'm sure that you agree. Oh, thanks. That's nice of you to say. I
1: mean, I, I I really like doing the picture work on web books as well. And finding the pictures is kind of like the icing on the cake after the text if I've had a hard day writing it's always a bit of a a nice wind down to look through some available pictures and try and order them and I try to order them so they do have a flow through the book Uh, so they go chronologically uh, and kind of match up fairly near the text that that they're illustrating and I like a mix of um, well I like as much archive as possible but it isn't always um, economic to have that yes Uh, and then I can intersperse
0: it with some of the manufacturer photos. Gotcha. Yeah, it's always a, that's always a treat. the The big car, uh, the big book of small cars. Um, as a quick aside, is I read it, and my co-host Bruce uh, went through it, and I've loaned it to two or three other friends, and and remarkably, all the friends have, have brought it back. You know, even you loan a book to someone, you're never quite sure if you're going to get it back. But but everybody just says, "Oh my gosh, this is so great!" and and some of the cars they've never heard of, and, and I hadn't heard of them either, but it's that's a great one. And, and this one I'm sure will be great for all the, the Volkswagen you know, fans, and there are obviously millions of Volkswagen fans, so nothing but success in, uh, with, with this book. And um, in terms of the Aston Martin book, uh, how far out on the horizon is that, and, and when will we be able to, to look at that one?
1: I think that's probably next year
0: i see but I'm, I'm, I'm getting near to finishing it but it's a very very big book gotcha great well russell um thank you as always um for the third time to be our uh guest in this case my guest on the weekly driver podcast um we look forward to speaking to you about to aston martin one of these days but um just nothing but respect for you and what you do as a journalist and um your, your books are fantastic so thank you for for being a guest as always and um Hope your health improves, and and uh, nice talk. Nice talking with you again. Appreciate it.
1: Thank
0: you very much. You're very kind. Okay. Cheers. Bye bye.